Good morning, you guys. I'm having that situation happen where your document closes and it doesn't like me anymore. You've never had that happen before, have you? Oh, that's weird. That's because... Uh, <laughs> Hi, stand by, please, for some technical difficulties. Don't worry, I'll be with you in just a moment. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how this... Did someone prank me this morning? <laughs> Tyler, it was you, wasn't it? That's fantastic. Okay. <gasps> you said a prayer. It worked. Good job. All right. <sighs> you know, it's it's just not a full day without some kind of a glitch, isn't it? Let me put my glasses on here. Well, good to see your guys' faces this morning. It's so great to, like, be here. At, when Sarah and I were gone at a marriage conference last week, and, and I missed all of you guys because I came back at the end of second service, and so... Uh, it, it feels like there's a big gaping hole in my life when I don't get to spend my Sunday morning with you guys. So thank you for being here. I don't know if you guys enjoy it, but I sure do. <clears throat> so this morning for announcements, we have beanies and sweatshirts out in the lobby. And Joe, hi. What's up, dude? Sorry, we have beanies and sweatshirts available in the lobby if you're interested in those. I'm sorry. I haven't seen my buddy Joe since January. And I just like, oh. This is one cup of coffee. Can you believe it? That's only one. Anyway, okay, so beanies and sweatshirts in the back. If you guys are interested, there's not many transformed sweatshirts left, but the sweatshirts are a $30 donation. The beanies are $25. If you're interested, they're back there. Um, also, we have a Christmas choir that's going to um, come up on Christmas Eve, and we're doing like a four-church collaborative Christmas choir. But what we need is people who are interested in doing this to sign up. Here is your opportunity, and I know you've been looking forward to this, to come and sing with me on stage. Because I'm going to be a part of the choir. I'm not leading the choir. I'm just a part of the choir. So if you guys are interested, the first rehearsal is going to be this Thursday. And it's going to be, I believe, well, when you sign up, it's on there. So when you sign up, you can find out what time it is. I think it's at 6.30. Um, but if you, is this 6.30? Yes. Memory. Okay, but anyway, please sign up and join me in the choir. If you're like, ah, I mean, I can sing, but I'm not like a soloist. You don't have to. It's choir. It's a choir. So sing in the choir, please. It'd be really fun. You can sing with me. I don't know if they'll let you stand next to me, but that's probably better for you if they don't. So if you want to sign up for that, go to transformcda.com slash events, and there's, a, there's a, a, like a little event for the choir, and you can click on a link there and register to do it. It's absolutely free. We're not even going to charge you. Okay. The next thing that I had to announce, because we're expecting a really full house in here on Christmas Eve, um, like we're going to fill the balcony in here. We're having other churches join us. Our four church family is going to join us. We're going to fill the lobby with seats. Um, we need people to register, and we set up a registration on our website for this. So if you go to the same events page that I mentioned before, we need you guys to sign up for how many people are going to be coming with you for Christmas Eve. So, uh, you know, adults in the house, just sign up for how many you're going to bring, but don't both of you do that because that would, that would throw us off a little bit. So go to transformcda.com slash events again and click on the Christmas Eve service registration and just put in how many people are going to be coming with you, friends, family, invite people. That'd be great. We just need to know how many people to prepare for. Okay. So that's coming up um, Christmas Eve. We're super excited to have all the other churches join us here. That service will be at 4 p.m. And it'll go from about 4 to 5. It's not going to be a super long service. Um, and we'd love to have you guys join us. One more announcement. The youth Christmas tree cutting is happening a week from today. Correct, BJ? Okay, so a week from today, they're going to go cut down. They, they're doing this legally. They got a permit. And so <laughs> you're like, 
We told them to come to your property and do it. No, so they're, they're, going to, they're going to go out and cut down a Christmas tree. It's going to be next Sunday after first service. So they're going to leave at about 11. There's limited seats in the vehicles. So you need to talk to BJ and let him know if you're planning on joining them to go cut down the Christmas tree. They're not going to decorate it until the following Wednesday. So if you're like, ah, oh, I can't make it to cut down the tree. It's cool. They're going to decorate it, the youth group, after they go cut it down. So they're going to do that as a, as a group together. So teens, if you want to go and cut down a tree with BJ legally, you can talk to him. It's perfectly legal. Did I mention it was legal? Okay, so we should pray together um, this morning. So I'm going to begin our time of prayer and then open it up um, to you guys to pray, and then BJ will come up and close us off. Um, But I want to begin our time of prayer by praying for uh, Pastor Bob Holman. Um, We prayed for him a couple weeks ago. Um, He has uh, cancer, has been struggling, stage four. Um, he's stage four cancer, and um, he's been having some um, strokes as, as a part of this. He had a bunch of them, like over 15 of them, a couple weeks ago. Um, yesterday, he got admitted to the hospital again. He had another one, and he was slurring his speech, and it's starting to affect him. Um, so we need to lift him up. He's, he's ready to see Jesus. Bob's ready to go home. Um, but he has a wife, and he has kids. He has a family, and um, and you know how this, this goes. So let's lift up the Hallman family, all of their friends that are around. The Kaczynskis are very close with them. Um, and, and Bob's still doing ministry. He's still reaching out to people. He's still ministering to people. And so um, for this final leg of his road that the Lord has for him here, let's pray that he is still effective for the kingdom, that he's still bringing glory to God. So I'll begin our time by praying for Bob, and then I, I encourage you guys to lift up your prayer requests as well. Lord... You're there with Bob right now. Uh, Lord, he's, as he's in the hospital, and um, God, we just thank you for the ministry that you have worked through him. I thank you, Lord, that he's finishing so well, even though this road is getting a lot bumpier and more difficult. God, he's such an inspiration in um, what he's allowing you to do through him. And so, Lord, I pray for Bob this morning that you would um, ease the pain the side effects, the things that are going on in his body. Lord, be glorified in what's going on as well and in the hospital and and all the things that we we don't see. Lord, I know there are going to be opportunities and ways for him to minister there. And Lord, I pray for Becky. Lord, I pray as she manages and and, and is um, just trying to care for him and and communicate with people who are concerned, Lord, that you would um, comfort her heart. Lord, that you would ease the stress that comes with this. And Lord, I pray for his kids and his family and and all those who are close with him, Lord, just to, um, to, to be ever mindful and ever remembering to pray. And, and Lord, I, I just thank you for uh, the influence and the impact that he's had on so many lives. Lord, we just pray that, um, Lord, he would finish this race well. Lord, that he would finish strong. Lord, just I know that he's anticipating uh, that face-to-face. And so, Lord, I, I thank you for that. I thank you, Lord, for the, the hope that we have. Lord, just encourage him with that hope. That's going to be reality very soon. And Lord, I pray that that would be something that encourages him forward and encourages him, Lord, to finish strong. Lord, stir our hearts to pray in this time. Stir our hearts to lift up the things that you've put on our hearts, Lord, that you're stirring us to pray for, and Lord, that we would agree as a body with one another. Uh, Work in us as we pray.
And Lord, I just, um, I'm just feeling so blessed and thankful for my dear friend, Joe, who's here, Pastor Joe, just the, the fact that you brought him all the way over here, um, to see us this holiday season. Um, Lord, if, if he was only a dear friend, that would be enough. All the years that he's um, been a dear friend to the family. Um, but beyond that, I also call him brother under you because of your work, Jesus, because of your work. Um, and so I just thankful for the work that you've done in his life, the way you've used him as a, as just a, an encouragement and a witness in my own life. And um, I pray that you would bless him this morning and that you'd bless his time here spent with um, family and friends uh, and that you would grant him safe travels home and um, that, Lord, you would continue to um, guide and, and lead him as he ministers and, and pastors everywhere he goes. Everywhere he goes, he's ministering. And so I pray that you would continue to to guide and lead him in um, what you have for him. So, uh, Lord, we ask this all in your name. Amen. All right, well, before we start our time, I want to read to you, uh, read to you guys from Isaiah 11. This is verses 1 and 2. Then a shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and strength, a spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Thanks, BJ. All right, guys, if you would turn with me this morning to Isaiah chapter 9. As you turn there, uh, the next four Sundays, we'll be taking a look at the four names for the Messiah in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. And the first of which that we'll cover this morning is he is our wonderful counselor. Um, we're going to take the scenic route there today um, because we need to come through some material before we can really get to a full understanding of what we're talking about uh, there in Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6. But um, this morning, if you were unaware, is the first Sunday morning of Advent. So the season of Advent is the four Sundays that precede Christmas Day. And um, they lead up to Christmas Day, which we celebrate the birth of Jesus into our broken world, born from a virgin, conceived by the Holy Spirit. These are things that we know, but we need to be reminded of this time of year. We need to remember why we celebrate Christmas and that it's not about all the stress. It's not about all the things that, that we have to get done or that we have to do or, or the people that we have to see. Um, in a lot of ways, we get to do all of those things, and I think that the change and the shift from seeing what we're doing this time of year from a have to to a get to, that the change of that mindset happens when we recognize that we are truly in this season celebrating and worshiping a Savior who came and was born into an animal feeding trough. We are here to worship a God who was so humble that when he condescended into the form of human flesh, that he was born into a barn, into a stable with animals, that he wasn't born into a lavish kingdom, that he was humble and lowly, that he lived a perfect human life, and that his perfect human life culminated in crucifixion on a Roman cross, that he died to purchase our souls from being sold into slavery by sin's power. He rescued us. He gave us new birth as he rose again on the third day. The gospel is the central focus of the Christmas season. The gospel story should be flowing in and out of our hearts constantly over the next few weeks as we prepare to celebrate 
the advent, the arrival of Jesus. That's what the word advent means. It means arrival. And so we celebrate the Advent season because we are just anticipating the celebratory response to the, re, uh, the arrival of the Savior and the anticipation not only of the arrival of him in what we've seen him do already in the past, but as we anticipate the second Advent, his second coming, that Jesus has not just come once and, and died on the cross and ascended to the Father, but that he is going to come again. Amen? And boy, are we excited for the second Advent. That's our anticipation. That's our longing. That's what we're ready for. We recognize that we are living in a time right now, you guys. We are living in a time of the history of this world where there's some already and some not yet. We've already seen Jesus come. We've already seen him die on the cross and and rise again. I'm going to keep saying it because we need the gospel in our hearts. We need to remember these things. But we live in a not yet sense in that we're anticipating the next move. We're anticipating the culmination of human history. We're anticipating the return of the king. You guys, Jesus has already come. But Jesus is coming again. That's what we salivate. That's what we celebrate. I just almost said salivate. That's what we celebrate. You can salivate too. That's fine. But that's what we celebrate during Advent. He is coming again. Be excited about this. It's not just a reminder of the past. It's anticipation of the future. That's why we're going to take some time this year, and we're going to take a few Sundays and just look at who Jesus is, what he has done, who he is now, and what he will do. If we bear in mind that there's an already not yet aspect to the Advent season, it gives us an incredible perspective of Old Testament messianic prophecy. You ever read prophecies in the Old Testament? And you're like, well, yeah, I mean, like some of this is there, but, but some of it, you ha- we haven't really seen that happen yet. That's because we're in between. That's because we're in the season of already not yet. So we're going to look at this season of Advent through the lens over the next four weeks of Isaiah 9, verse 6, just this one verse. But because it will behoove us to have all of the history and all of the background, I'm going to take some time on that this morning. And because you know... I just can't resist. I'm not going to be able to just talk about this one thing. We need to open this up a little bit more. We need to unpack it. And so one of the most well-known prophecies of the Messiah is what we're going to be looking at in Isaiah 9, 6. But it was given nearly 700 years before he was born. Let's go back a little bit further. And if you want to go back in your Bibles, you can. I'm going to put a lot of the scriptures on the screen. Um, But we're going to go back about three chapters prior to Isaiah chapter 6, because in Isaiah chapter 6, something very significant happens in the life of the prophet Isaiah. It's there that Isaiah in chapter 6, at the very beginning, he says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Now what he saw of the Lord, this vision of the Lord, is so well known for us, because this is a very often quoted passage of Scripture. The vision that Isaiah had of the Lord was not him standing in a field talking to him. What he saw was the Lord high and lofty, seated on a throne. The hem of his throne, the hem of his robe, excuse me, says it filled the temple. The seraphim were there, these angels standing above him. They each had six wings. Two they covered their faces with, with two they covered their feet, with two they flew. And they're singing out and they're worshiping God. They're calling out one to, one to one another, the glory of God. The foundations of the doorways are shaking. You would be significantly rattled if you were there, and so would I. 
What's happening in Isaiah 6 is not a conversation that's calm and quiet. He is seeing the glory of God unleashed as it were. And Isaiah's response to this was not pride. It wasn't confidence. It wasn't being self-assured. In fact, he says, I am ruined. Woe to me, he says. I am undone. I am ruined. Church, don't go by that. Let that sink in. We need to be undone by the glory and the holiness of God continually. It should be something that shines this light on us, this realization of how broken we actually are. When experiencing the holiness and power of God, Isaiah realized that he was a sinner. He had no words that were worthy to speak. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I'm dwelling with a people who have unclean lips. We shouldn't even say anything in the presence of God. We should remain silent. I shouldn't even be here. And left in that state, Isaiah would have remained ruined. But God didn't leave him in that state. God didn't leave him there. The seraphim flies over. As the prophet realizes his own sin in the presence of the Almighty God and in his inability to save himself, as he despairs, God cleanses him by sending the seraphim with the coal and he touches his mouth and he says, your mouth is clean now. Your iniquity is removed. Your sin is atoned for. And the response of Isaiah is not to shrink back and be like, no, seriously, you're not able to do this. If God says it's done, it's done. And the next thing that God says is, who will go? Who will speak for us? And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. You've cleansed me. I want to serve you. It's a powerful passage of scripture. Isaiah's commissioning in chapter 6 really begins the process of leading up to chapter 9 because what we see in those preceding chapters from chapters 6, 7, and 8 is a sanctification, if you will, of the prophet Isaiah. It's a beautiful theological picture. And as he goes through this process in Isaiah chapter 7, we see King Ahaz being spoken to by the prophet, and Ahaz says, God has said, ask a sign from me. Now, Ahaz was a wicked king. And God tells Isaiah, tell him to ask a sign. I'll give him a sign to prove to him that I'm going to do this. God's giving Ahaz an opportunity to do the right thing. And Ahaz says, no, I'm not going to ask for a sign. He refuses to ask for a sign from God. And when when he was told to, and so God says, I'm going to give you one anyway. Don't you love it when God's like, you know, like he loves us, but he's like, I'm going to do it anyway. You don't control him. You don't get to tell God what he's going to do. I don't get to tell God what he's going to do. He's like, no, 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 you, you're going to hear this. And in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. See, the virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel. He says, you're going to get a sign, Ahaz. And here's the sign. A virgin will conceive. She'll have a son and name him God with us. That's what Emmanuel means. God with us. When when I think about my brokenness, think about all the pictures in the Old Testament of people being broken and then restored by God. Think about Adam and Eve in the garden. What did they do when they sinned? They hid. Why? We can't be around God. there's brokenness here. Isaiah, I'm undone when he sees the holiness of God. I can't, I I have unclean lips. 
Think about how God continually restores us. And think about this. God restores us by coming to us. God restores us to himself by coming to us, by condescending and coming to us and offering us covering, cleansing, atonement. And so here when you read God with us, don't separate that from the brokenness of Isaiah. See that Isaiah, having had his lips cleansed, says, yes, this is beautiful. This is how God cleanses his people. God doesn't want to be farther away from you when you sin, church. Did you hear that? He does not want to be farther away from you when you sin. He wants to be closer to you. If you feel the desire to run from God, that is your flesh. It's my flesh when I don't want to be near him. When I mess up, I should want to be closer to him because he wants me still. When my lips are filthy, when my life is a wreck, when I am far off and away from him, even not asking for a sign like sinful, messed up Ahaz, even in the midst of that, God says, here's the sign I'll give to you. God with us. That's powerful. It's life-altering. Can we grasp here that despite our brokenness and ruin, God has reached out to us and cleansed us through the provision of his son. The only chance for us is God with us. Amen? That's what we must have. And maybe some of you right now are entering this season feeling very far away from God, feeling buried in your brokenness and your sin, and you're running. You don't want to be near him. Why? Why would God want me? How can I be anywhere near him? He wants you now more than ever. He wants you in your brokenness more than ever because only he can save you. Only he can restore you. God wants you with him because he has come to be with us in our brokenness, in our wretchedness. Stop running. Isaiah goes from ruin to cleansed, and the cleansing will come from Emmanuel, Jesus, God with us, the true atonement of our sin. As Isaiah goes through this journey of these, these number of chapters, as he receives the vision that God gives to him in chapter 8, there's a coming invasion of the Assyrians. For the northern tribe of Israel, this is going to be the end of their time. They're going to be laid out by the Assyrian army. The Assyrians were the superpower of this day. They were the war machine, and Israel was rattled and broken and weak in comparison. They were no match for what was coming from the, the Assyrian invasion. And it's coming quickly because of Israel's sin, yet God's leading Isaiah through his words. He's already said this is what's going to happen. I want to pick up and read an extended section here in Isaiah chapter 8, verses 11 through 17, because there are some powerful things to read for us to apply to our lives right now. Because so many, for so many of us, and I'm not trying to spiritualize this, we feel like we're in a battle. We feel like we're in a battle. We feel like we see things coming. I don't know about you, but in our country, a lot of times we get caught up. Things are coming. These conversations are had often. I can see it coming. This is what's coming. This is a, I can feel this coming. Well, let's look at how God told Isaiah to handle it. Shall we? Isaiah 8, verse 11. We'll read down through verse 17. For this is what the Lord said to me with great power to keep me from going the way of this people. Hold up. God told him the following words with power so that Isaiah didn't fall in with the nation that was sinful and rebellious. He says, Isaiah, this is for you. This is to steer you in the right direction. Do not call everything a conspiracy. 
that these people say is a conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be terrified. Church, this is for us. Verse 13. You are to regard only the Lord of armies as holy. Only he should be feared. Only he should be held in awe. Amen? Only God. Only the Lord. He will be a sanctuary, but for the two houses of Israel, he will be a stone to stumble over and a rock to trip over and a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. May many, he says, will stumble over these. They will fall and be broken. They will be snared and captured. Bind up the testimony. Seal up the instruction among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will wait for him. Isaiah is being told there is bad things coming in punishment and in wrath of God being poured out on sinful, broken Israel who have rejected God and have worshiped idols. God says, all right, it's time. I'm going to deal with this. But he says, but for you, don't think like them. Don't fall to the same brokenness. Don't stumble over the rock. Don't call the things a conspiracy that the people say is a conspiracy. Don't fear what they fear. Don't fall in line. You guys, we live in a time where everyone wants us good and afraid. The media wants you good and afraid. Leaders of countries want you good and afraid. We don't have to. We don't have to be. God is still sovereign. Amen? He's still sovereign. It's still God with us. Jesus came. He's coming again. And the reason we dislike the leadership that's happening so much right now is that we want Jesus to rule. We want Jesus in charge. Following this, the prophet paints a dark picture of the state of those who refuse to turn to God's instruction. They're destined to wander, to hunger, even blame God for the state they're in. We've never seen that. Oh, I'm in this place because, you know, God doesn't love me. I'm in this place because he blessed these people over here with all this stuff, but he hasn't blessed us with it. This is God's fault. When we get really, really low, there's stages. Um, if you if you counsel people, there's stages they get to, and a lot of times one of the lower stages is they start blaming God. Believers do. This happens. They start blaming God. I don't know what I did to him. You guys, first of all, that's normal in our flesh. That happens. We've all experienced that. We need to call it what it is. That is thinking in the terms and the mindset of the world. That is not recognizing the sovereignty of God. He is a big picture God. I am a small picture person. You know why we struggle so much with pain, loss, brokenness, all the things that we go through, the suffering of this life? It's because we are nearsighted, church. We don't see everything the way he sees it. Our thoughts are not his thoughts. Our ways are not his ways. And that's good news because when God reveals that to Isaiah, he's telling him, my thoughts are for you. My ways are for your benefit. You just don't see it right now. So that's where faith comes in. We have to believe in him. We have to trust him that he knows what he's doing despite all that we're going through. The nation's destined to wander, hunger, and even blame God when they refuse his instruction. They know the gloom of affliction. They'll be driven into deeper and deeper darkness. The stage for Isaiah 9 at this point gets set. 
the impending attack from the Assyrians, the brokenness of the people, the sinfulness of the people, the call for God to say to his disciples, those who love him, those who obey him, stand strong. Don't act like these people. Don't fall to what they're falling to. And it's here that Isaiah chapter 9 is set for a very important prophecy, for a very important promise. Let's look at verse 1. I'll read all the way down through verse 6 of Isaiah 9. Yes, that was all introduction. Oh, boy. There will be an intermission about halfway through. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Nevertheless, Isaiah 9, verse 1, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future he will bring honor to the way of the sea, to the land east of the Jordan, and to Galilee of the nations. This is beautiful, guys. The people walking in darkness, has seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time and as they rejoice when dividing spoils. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. For every trampling boot of battle and the bloody garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. For a child will be born for us. A son will be given to us. And the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. Those are the four names of the Messiah that we're going to spend time on over the next four Sundays, including this morning. In verses 1 through 2, this is an important part of this prophecy. Zebulun and Naphtali were the tribes that were hit hardest by the Assyrian invasion. He's not only predicting how hard they're going to be hit, but that someone is coming that's going to bless these regions unlike any other. And the devastation that was there was extensive, and yet there's going to be hope because the region of Galilee would see an amazing day in the future. Matthew chapter 4, in fact, verse 12 going all the way through verse 17, when he, speaking of Jesus, this is Jesus now in the flesh, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. He left Nazareth and went to live in Capernaum by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Hey, look. Sorry, that was more curly than I wanted to be. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, along the road by the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who live in darkness have seen a great light, and for those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From then on, Jesus began to preach, repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. What is the good news that Jesus brings to this region? What is the light that he shines into these people's lives who were so broken and so devastated by the Assyrians all those years? before what's the good news that he brings repent you know if you preach repentance to people a lot of times like oh oh you're you're judging me jesus came preaching a message of repentance turn away from your sin do you realize how good that news is when we recognize when we're humbled and we recognize how broken we are how sinful we are and god says repent What does that mean? What does that term literally mean? If I'm facing this way, 
I'm turning and going the opposite direction. That's what repentance is. It's a U-turn. You're repenting. God calls us to repentance. Think about this. Why is that good news? Because he's telling us to turn around and come to him. He's not condemning us. He's offering us salvation. The message of repentance is the ultimate message of hope. Do we convey that to people? Do we convey that to a broken world? You need to repent of your sin. You're judging me. No, I'm not. I'm telling you, God wants you. He wants you. Jesus died for you. He wants you with him. He wants you to turn and come to him. You guys, so much of this prophecy would seem impossible reading it in Isaiah's time. This felt impossible. This felt undoable, especially after the Assyrians came and laid waste to their country. Especially when you looked at the power that was in charge at that time, this was not very believable. It looks impossible. The Assyrians were the dominant power. God's people were weak and crushed. And how often do we forget in this context what the angel told Mary when he said to her that she was going to have a baby without a dude being involved? By the way, gals, it's not a very believable statement. You're going to have a child. Uh, One small problem, Mary interjects, and the angel's like, no, 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 no. It's not happening like that. This child's going to be conceived by the Holy Spirit. And notice this, in Luke chapter 1, verse 37, the angel tells Mary, for nothing will be impossible with God. Church, are we looking at impossible circumstances? Right now, have we or will we? There are so many things that we look at and you can't find a way. I don't know how I'm going to do this. I don't know how this situation works out. This situation I'm facing is too big. There's, there's too much weakness over here. I can't handle it. And the angel looked at Mary and said, now what I just said sounds really not feasible. He says, but what's most important is this. Nothing is impossible with God. Nothing. And what happened? She had a boy a little while after that. You guys... If God promises, it's done. We have to believe it. We have to believe. We have to trust. In Isaiah 9, this arrival of a child, this advent would be so unprecedented. Eh? No, not even a reaction from her. So unprecedented. Sorry, it's my wife's most hated word right now. I threw it in there just for you. Okay, so... This arrival of a child, this advent would be so unprecedented that it compared, is compared to the liberation of the nation by Gideon. That's when it referenced the Midianites. You remember Gideon's victory over the Midianites, Judges chapter 6 and 7? Remember he showed up with like this tiny army, like 10,000 guys? Or like, I think it started out 30,000 guys, gets taken out of 10,000. By the end, he's at 300. He has 300 dudes. Not the 300, but like 300 men God style, right? It's in Judges. So (laughs) there's a couple chuckles. Here's the thing, you guys. God takes this tiny group and he brings this amazing victory for his people against impossible odds. Against impossible odds. What God is going to do is going to be so amazing. 
that no one is going to be able to say, remember this from the story of Gideon, no one is going to be able to say that Gideon won that battle. Not accurately, in other words. You guys, the reason God brought that army so far down to those 300 men is because God wanted it to be said and known that he won that battle that day, that he gave Israel the victory. Why did God send his son in this way so that no one could ever take credit? It was all God. It was all him saving the entire race. The entirety of humanity has been offered salvation. God has reconciled himself to all, it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. That doesn't mean all are saved. God has extended his hand to all. He has extended his hand. Now we have to decide what we're going to do with his complete provision of salvation through Jesus. He has done it all. None of us can boast. We do nothing except believe. I believe And he who believes, whoever believes, will be saved because God has done the rest. Amen? Do you see the already not yet aspect of this in verse 6? Check it out. As we get to this point of looking at how God is going to do this amazing, impossible thing for a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, all falls in line with the Messiah being born, And the government will be on his shoulders. The government will be on his shoulders? Yeah. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The child has been born already. The son has been given already. But the word used for government in verse 6 is Misra. It's interesting if you look at verse 7, it's translated dominion. Same word. Same word, different context, but same Hebrew word is used in both contexts. It means the same thing, but look at the context. Look at verse 7. We'll read this together. He, uh, excuse me, I was in the wrong chapter. <laughs> that would have been really out of place. Verse 7 says this, The dominion will be vast, and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. Have we seen that happen yet? Have we seen a dominion of Christ in this way yet? No. And I don't think he's spiritualizing because that doesn't fit with the text. He's talking about a day coming, the not yet, where Jesus will rule and he will rule forevermore. Isn't that cool? I can't wait for that. And it's what's coming. If God has already fulfilled the impossible of the virgin birth, then why would I doubt that he's coming again? If he has never failed at any prophecy or any promise that he's made to us, why do we grow disheartened when we think about our future when that is our future? We should never grow weary. We should never grow weak in that way when we remember what he has done and what he has promised that he will do. The first advent happened in Bethlehem nearly 2,000 years ago. The second advent is coming and the government is going to be upon his shoulders and he will reign forever. I think a lot of times what I struggle with the most on a day-to-day, on a minute-by-minute basis is not recognizing the past and not recognizing what's coming, but it's the now. How many of us are people that just struggle with the daily stuff? 
the daily living, the daily walk. This, it's the now that's, that's difficult because we're in this place of anticipation and we're almost like crying out like, how long? What do I do with myself right now? How, how do I be faithful now? Our goal over the next four Sundays, including this morning, is to look at the names of Jesus and not just see who he has been and who he will be, but to remember that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That the King of Kings is still the King of Kings. Right now. How does that work in us now? The first name that he bears is he's our wonderful counselor. He's our wonderful counselor. We have to be careful not to downplay the reality that Jesus is the wonderful counselor. Because I don't, I don't know what you think of when you think of the word wonderful. There's a whole slew of songs that start playing in my head, right? But what does the word wonderful in this context actually mean? It doesn't mean he's just super great, okay? It doesn't mean like, wow, he's such a super great God. That's awesome, wonderful counselor. That's not what it means, you guys, that word wonderful is the same word used by the psalmist when he writes in Psalm seventy-seven, fourteen: you are the God who works wonders. You revealed your strength among the peoples. Psalm 78, verse 12, he worked wonders in the sight of their ancestors in the land of Egypt, the territory of Zoan. What is wonders in that context? It holds on to a, an idea of the miraculous. It's connected to the miraculous. It's connected to something that only he can do. He is wonderful in the same way that he is a miracle worker, that he works in the realm of the impossible. Now think about that word. Think about wonderful and think about that he wonderfully counsels us. He is a wonderful counselor. He's a miraculous and impossible counselor. What does that mean? Think about it in connection with his deity and not apart from it. Jesus, the son, has always been. He wasn't created. God, the son, the second part of the Trinity, was not a created being. He always has been. Everything was created by him. Everything is for him. Look at Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. That's what it talks about. Jesus created everything. That speaks of majesty and power and sovereignty. And yet, he miraculously and wonderfully counsels us. He miraculously or wonderfully counsels us. Through his word, the scriptures, yes. Through his works, yes. Through the things that he's done. But you guys, also in this context, go a little deeper. Where does Jesus counsel us? We, we, we tell people all the time, well, you need to read the Bible. That's true. You need to read the scriptures. You should be reading your Bible. I'm, I should be reading my Bible. That should be a part of our lives because we love the God who wrote this. We love the God who gave this to us. Not because we love the book. We love the God who wrote it. Amen? That's why the scriptures are valuable because the power of the pen that wrote it was God himself. There's power in prayer because it's communion with God and I. It's intimacy. And in that vein, when we think about it, you know, where is God? I'll say, you can answer. Where's God? He's where? Everywhere. Does that feel broad? It should. It's everywhere, right? But like, but, but here's the thing. That feels broad, but it's also true. It's a very true statement. That's not a wrong statement. 
Christy, you nailed it. It's not a wrong statement. She's like, oh, Mike's beat me down from the pulpit. No, no, you guys, no, God is everywhere. That's a broad statement, but it's true. But think about how many times we view God in that way. Well, God is everywhere. It's almost like saying he's nowhere. We would argue and argue correctly in the opposite, but does that make sense to you? Well, God is everywhere. What does that mean? Well, there's nothing really special about that. There is something special about that, and there's something special about him being a wonderful counselor, and here's why. In Psalm chapter 16, verses 7 through 8, the psalmist writes this, I will bless the Lord who counsels me even at night when my thoughts trouble me. Hold up. God is where? Everywhere. When does he counsel you? All the time. Everywhere. I don't know what nighttime is like in your home. But nighttime in my house is the time of insecurity. It's the time of fear. Some of them rational, some of them irrational. But the conversations that are had in the late watches, and I don't know about, okay, gals, I don't know if you do this to your husbands or not, but I'm just going to share a personal experience with you. I have learned over the nearly, it'll be 20 years this next year, 20 years of marriage almost. Yeah, yeah. Who is that? All right, there you go. (laughs) There you are. No, so you guys, I have learned in, in this number of years of being married that I don't have long conversations with my wife right before we go to sleep. Because at nighttime, a lot of times we're overwhelmed. We're overwhelmed from the day. We're physically exhausted. We're in a place where we need to go to sleep. There's all of these factors in play. This is the time of the most vulnerability. When does God counsel us? The psalmist says, even at night when my thoughts trouble me. Even at the time where you are in the most duress. David, the psalmist, and the general, as he was fighting in battles and leading his men, they come back to this city in this one story in 1 Samuel. They come back to this city that um, they, had, they had left their wives and kids at. I shared this story a little while back. They come back to this city, and their wives and their children are gone. They've been taken captive while they were away, while the men were away. Um, you know, getting ready to fight in a battle. They got sent back. They didn't fight in that battle. And they come back, their wives, their children, they're all gone. And the men are so upset, they're talking about killing David. And it says, David strengthened himself in the Lord. David didn't despair in that moment of your entire life falling apart. Your wife and your children are gone. The city's been emptied out. Your own men, your homies are ready to kill you. That's from the message version. They're, they're ready to kill you, right? And it says, David strengthened himself in the Lord. He strengthened himself in God there. He meets us in our time when we are the lowest, where we are the most broken. Nighttime is the time of troubled thoughts. But the psalmist says, I will always let the Lord guide me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. He is the most wonderful, overwhelmingly gracious counselor that we could ever have. And one of the promises of the Messiah is not just all of the things that we like to talk about him doing in his humility in his life as he was born into a manger, as he lived a perfect life, as he died on the cross, as he rose again on the third day, as he ascended to heaven, and he'll return again. 
This is the God who meets you in the dark watches of the night and gives you counsel. He is meeting you in the darkest, most secret place where you are in all of your brokenness and leading you there. I hope that's clicking because I don't know how else to bring that home. He is the same God who created everything you've ever seen and he is in the darkest recesses of your heart. He meets you there. He loves you there. He draws you to himself there. The Advent is so much more than his arrival and his coming. It's a reminder that God is present. It's not just a reminder that he is here in the room where we are gathered. Yes, he's here. You know, when you leave today, he's with you then too. And tonight, when you're distressed, when your thoughts are troubling you, He's going to be there too. In fact, those are some of the most intimate, precious moments that you can have with them. And when you start to feel that freak out coming on at night where you're about to lose it and I can't do it anymore and I'm going crazy, Jesus is right there miraculously, wonderfully counseling you. He's not far from you. He's right there with you. In fact, Paul writes in Colossians 1.27, speaking of what Jesus has done, he says, God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The wonderful realization of the goodness of God is that he is not far, that it's Christ in you. He's in you. Don't grow weary, church. Find your refreshment in the reminder that the child was born that he lives within you now and that he will return to reign forever. The world around us is changing. The world around us will continue to change. Now, the sins are going to be the same. Solomon was right when he said there's really nothing new under the sun. Everything's just kind of recycling. But the world changes in the midst of that. We've seen a lot of change in our time. Our world changed greatly just a year and a half, two years ago. It took a huge change. Everything's changing. Oh, I can't handle all the change. We talk about it all the time, you know. Sometimes when we're feeling a little less Christian, sometimes when we feel a little more Christian, we want to talk about all the change that's going on in our world. It's true. The world will change. But Hebrews 13.8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the rock that is immovable. He is the foundation, as we talked about in the Sermon on the Mount, that we must build our lives upon. As we build and we frame up, we build on Jesus because he is immovable. Amen? He is immovable. If you feel things rattling, check the foundation. Check the foundation. And you know what's awesome about that? He is here. He is here. And he is our wonderful counselor. Worship team, come on up. Lord, as we offer you our praise, I just want to take a moment and I want to ask you, Lord, to make us aware. Not only of your presence ministering amidst your body, you are the head, we're your church, we're your body. 
Lord, none of the things said here this morning from your word have any intention to separate us from you. Everything that you called to us with, everything that you've written to us is to draw us to yourself. And as we think about you being our wonderful counselor, Lord, that's, that's a message of intimacy that I, I just feel like I don't have the words for it. It's almost something that has to be felt. And while we recognize that it is something that has to be felt, Lord, I want to be able to to explain this in a way that all of us, myself included, can truly be transformed by. Because, Lord, we struggle with what we see. We struggle with what we go through. Lord, we struggle with everything in this life that pulls us away from you. It's, It's a constant battle, flesh versus spirit and temptation and And Lord, we are so weak. We are so ruined. But you've cleansed us. You've stood us up on two feet. You've commissioned us. You've called us, Lord, just as you did with Isaiah. You've told us to go. Go to all the nations. Baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Teaching discipling. Jesus, you've empowered us to do this, and and yet, Lord, I, I feel that so many times we're just running ourselves in circles in our own hearts. Would you be our wonderful counselor here? For families in, in crisis, Lord, I pray that you would be their wonderful counselor. For the young people that are struggling in relationships, would you be their wonderful counselor? God, for our marriages, would you be our wonderful counselor? For our church and for our community, would you be our wonderful counselor? Would you work miracles in our lives, Lord? Not so that to prove to us, Lord, that that we're special. But God, so that your name would be lifted up. So that you would be glorified. God, if it's in our brokenness, teach us to be like Paul, where we glory in our brokenness. We glory in our weakness because your power is made perfect in it. Would you show us, God, how to live this life in a way that honors you? And Lord, I pray over the hearts that are resisting you. God, I pray for hearts even in this room that may not know you. That they would see you are calling to them. That you died for their sin. That you want them. Lord, that repentance is restoration. So we confess. And I ask that as we sing and as we worship, Lord, that you would cleanse us, that you would refresh us, and we thank you.